Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, been a bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Ron Daniels. I'm president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and convener of the National African American Reparations Commission. And I want to welcome you to this National Juneteenth Forum on Building a Culture of Repair, convened by the Global Circle for Reparations and Healing. First of all, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there on Juneteenth Day. Yes. We have declared Juneteenth a day of reparations and healing. I know they got watermelon ice cream and all kinds of salads, and stuff, but we're not buying none of any of that. We are talking about reparations and healing. To begin the proceedings, it is my honor to bring to the podium the senior pastor of this historic church. And let me just say that 30 years ago, I was an independent candidate for president of the United States. In fact, somebody just walked up and told me that they voted for me. I appreciate your vote, brother. But I declared my candidacy for the president of the United States right here at the historic Shiloh Baptist Church. Yes. And so this church is a great church, a wonderful church, and we bring now the senior pastor of this historic church of worship, Reverend Dr. Wallace Charles Smith, for the welcome and the invocation. Please welcome him. Dr. Daniels, a distinguished panel, I just want to welcome you to the Shiloh Baptist Church. Um, we have worship service here this morning and uh, have been celebrating all day. But this is an important occasion. This is the first, and all of you know this, I'm not saying anything you don't know, this is the first of the national celebrations of Juneteenth. And being here today is very important. It's an indication that we as people of color, but also goodwill, understand that we have to really work more and more to make sure that our issues are not swept away. That's been the case for much too long. And so we thank God for you, and we're glad that you're here today. And I know we're going to get some great information from this very distinguished panel. Let us pray. Lord God, we certainly thank you for this occasion. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this very special obser observation, observance of this important date. Lord, it is just one of those tragedies of history that people in Texas had to wait two years before they found out that they were free as unscrupulous planters and owners continue to benefit from their free labor, although for all of those two years they were free men and women. Lord, in that spirit, we pray for justice, we pray for equity, we pray for fairness. We thank you for visiting us today and helping us to think clearly about what we, what we must do if we're going to continue the pathways of freedom. Amen. 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 You're quite welcome, Doc. Okay. And so now, in the African tradition, we'd like to invite the ancestors to join us. So for those who are able and willing, would you please stand? <laughs> <laughs> 
for those of you who are able and willing, if you don't have to, if you don't want to, and if you're, uh, and we're going to be assisted by Minister Christian Watkins. In the African tradition, libations are poured because the African worldview is based on the notion that we not only are born, we of course die, but we continue in a ceaseless cycle of birth and death and resurrection. In the African worldview, there is the notion that we can invite our ancestors to be with us, to both bless us and to be among us as long as we utter their names. Nomo, the African word for the word. And when we utter their names, we bring them in to our, our gatherings and to our midst, and they are able to be with us and to guide us and to bless us and to empower us. And there are many, many different ways that libations are poured throughout the African continent, and so we just sort of synchronize a way of doing it. And so in a very abbreviated way, we are going to do it today. I'll say a few words, and then I'm going to invite you to participate in the process by joining it. We begin by saying that we understand that we are an African people, that we are the creators of all of civilization, that all of humankind flows from out of Africa, from the womb of an African woman, indeed. That we are the, giver, we are the givers of life and civilization, the great inventions that help to create civilization, and we created great universities and great institutions. We are not a servile people. We are the original givers of life and civilization. And for that, we say Ashe. There came a time, however, in our life, the life and times of our great people, when there was an intrusion. We called it the Maafa, the African Holocaust, where intruders from another, another world, another, 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 another planet, not another planet, another uh, part of the, the world intervened into Africa. And in so doing, utilizing weapons that we had not seen before and weapons that we were not capable of resisting to some extent captured us. They captured us. But they did not capture us without resistance because at every step, Africans resisted, whether it was Queen Nzinga and Shaka Zulu and others, we fought, we struggled, we resisted the conquest. And for all of those who fought and struggled and fought for our redemption and our salvation, let us say, Ashe. We went to those dread castles that many of you have visited. And we were sent across the ocean, not knowing whether we would ever see our homeland again. But even then, in the Christian terms, there were some who said, before I be a slave, I be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. People resisted on the ships. They fought on the ships. And some actually dove overboard, knowing that we as an African people come back again and again and again. For those whose bodies are buried yet, yet have risen from the ocean, let us say, Ashe. On into this hemisphere we came to uh, actually build even as we were enslaved, even as they tried to strip us of our identity, even as they tried to strip us and to have us believe 
that our blackness was inferior, we did not believe. And so we went even into places like Jamaica and throughout Central and South America, and we created communities, maroon communities, where we fought back communities so strong that, that in many instances the Europeans would not touch them. They negotiated treaties with our folk because as an African people we have that sense of resilience. And yet others were conquered because of the superiority of the weaponry and the disorientation of being away. And so for all of those who were enslaved and whose wealth was extracted, we say ashe. We also say ashe for those who, did, who resisted and among them, the Haitian Revolution, the greatest revolution the world has ever seen, led by the voodoo priest, Bukman, who prayed to the African God. He said, the white man's God we do not understand, but the black man's God and woman's God is a righteous God. And so it was Bukman and Waka who led, who gave the spiritual power. We know about Toussaint L'Ouverture. We know about Dissaline. We know, but we need to know about Bukman because it was the spiritual power of Bukman who gave the Haitian revolutionaries from all over the Caribbean the power to achieve one of the greatest victories in the, human, the history of humankind. They defeated the French and sent them back packing to France, and they created an independent nation. For them, we say, Ache. And throughout the hemisphere, we know, even into the Americas, we were enslaved, yet we created as we enslaved. We, we created music. We found ways to be up in the master's face and say, steal away to Jesus. And they thought we were just talking about Jesus. We were talking about resisting because we'd be a creative people. And we fought back. Denmark Basie, Tucson, Denmark Basie, Nat Turner, rebellion after rebellion after rebellion we fought for all of those slave rebellions let us say Ashe and on to after emancipation no 40 acres in the mule but nonetheless we, we fought to unify our families a part of why we gather today is because there was the brutalization of our families and our women and our children and yet Upon the emancipation, we went looking for our children. We wanted to reunite our families and try to find a way to make a way out of no way, and we did that. And for those who were not enslaved, they created institutions like the African Methodist, Methodist Episcopal Church and other independent institutions because that's who we are as an African people. For those who resisted in those ways, let us say, Ashe. And on into the 21st century, whether it's the Honorable Marcus, Magar, Mo, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, whether it is whether it is uh, Queen Mother Moore and on into or El Haj Malik El Shabazz into the 21st century, we have been fighting and building and resisting and creating for ourselves in the middle of this hostile, racist, white supremacist, infected system. We have survived, as uh, Maya Angelou says, and still we rise, and still we rise, and still we will continue to rise. And so shout out the names of, you know, there's Fannie Lou Hamer and there's, there's, there's all the different people that you could, you could shout out. I invite you to shout out the name of your heroes and sheroes and say out the names of your families. Shout out their names. 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 Let them bring them in to shout out their names. And now we have a moment of silence. The last point of the water, Ashe.
haven't invited the ancestors in. You may all be seated now. Quickly, the occasion that brings us here, and we're so happy that you're all here. There are so many Juneteenth celebrations taking place. Someone said today it's not necessarily about celebration, it's about acknowledgement, it's about really knowing from whence we've come and knowing our history and all of that will be a part of the program today and all of these programs. Look at these two beautiful young children in the front row. They're soaking it up. Let's give them a big round of applause for being here. And so what we have done is we've brought together an extraordinary assembly of reparations advocates and, and healers who are coming to you to, to remind America and the world because we can never, we must never, ever forget. So we remind America and the world of the harms, of the injuries inflicted on our people across this country, descendants, of descendants, African descendants in the U.S. and across the world over centuries through the Maafa. We are also here, however, to talk about the resilience and the resistance and the building of our people. We want to talk today about the, 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 the status of what Professor Hillary Beckles has called the human rights movement of the 21st century, reparations. That reparations is the human rights struggle of the 21st century. What Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has said, that only reparations gets at the heart of structural institutional racism, that there can be no more perfect union unless there is reparations. So we'll be talking about the status of H.R. 40. We'll be talking about other forms of healing that are taking place. And we want to talk about how we create reparative systems because at the end of the day, we don't want to create systems that replicate the damage and the harm, the values that created this capitalist political economy that has destroyed so many people. We want to figure out how we avoid that. And then finally, we want to hear from you in the audience, an opportunity to hear your suggestions and your ideas, having heard the conversation. So that's our purpose. That is what we'll be doing to today. Let me just quickly say that among the, or, the organizations that are a part of the global circle of uh, reparations and, and healing are the uh, Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund, the Black Parent Initiative, Community Healing Network, Decolonizing Wealth Project, Farms, Global Black Diaspora Rising, the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, Dr. Joy DeGruy Productions, JDP Incorporated, Jubilee Justice, LWC Studios, Cobra, NBCI Trust, Ready Nationwide, Safe Black Space, Spirit House Incorporated, the Africa American Institute, AAI, Federation of Southern Farms Cooperatives, uh, Atlanta Assistance Fund, the Grassroots Reparations Campaign, Telling Truth Project, and Kingdom, Kingdom Branding. Give them all a big round of applause. And so now to get our program started at another level, we want to invite in by recorded message the woman who has inherited a torch from the Honorable John Conyers. John Conyers, 
at the behest of Encobra, at the behest of a figure, and that's why you have to shout out these names. Reparation Ray Jenkins. People may not know him, but Reparations Ray Jenkins was one strong African freedom fighter who kept going to Congressman John Conyers and saying, we've got to do something about reparations. We've got to do something about reparations because of that. And because John Conyers is who he was, one of the greatest progressive legislators in the history of this country. Let's give it up for, for John Conyers. <laughs> Tremendous legislator. The Martin Luther King bill is because of John Conyers, because he fought for it and never gave up. But the woman who has inherited the torch from him and fights in his legacy is out of Houston, Texas. In fact, she is the person who introduced initially the concept of Juneteenth that was embraced last year. She is the, uh, the woman who is uh, on the Judiciary Committee, but she's the lead sponsor of H.R. 40, courageous, visionary. You see her all the time championing all kinds of con uh, causes. I don't know where she get all that, gets all that energy from, but she is, she is energetic. She is uh, very dynamic. She's the one who leads us in this struggle for H.R. 40. We now invite in the Honorable Sheila Jackson Lee. Hello, I'm Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. How powerful today is building a culture of repair, the global circle of reparations and healing. Hello to my friends, and particularly the friends of the Why We Can't Wait Coalition, who have been working for now 90 months to be part of this great program and be part of the world discussion, the nation's discussion, on not only Juneteenth, but H.R. 40, the Commission to Study slavery and reparations. How do they intertwine? I was so glad to be the first member of Congress to introduce the legislation to create the Juneteenth federal holiday, having done the resolutions for almost a decade. Even this week, I introduced a resolution just to make sure that the record of Congress had the acknowledgement of Juneteenth. Juneteenth established in 1865. It was the time uh, that General Granger arrived two years late after the proclamation uh, emancipation that freed the slaves. But west of the Mississippi, the slaves still worked. General Granger came on the shores of Galveston and the life of those slaves, those slaves who had uh, been the beast of burden, who had not been compensated, who had not been respected, who had not allowed families to be united. And there they were listening with advance of, of, of just an amazing amount of expectation. And this is what we do today in this forum. Their expectation was for goodness and for what was right. But as General Granger read that order, that order said that you, the slaves, are now free. You can continue your manual labor. And in fact, you now don't have to leave. You can be part of an employer-employee relationship with your master. I would argue that many of the slaves there who were there with expectation may have understood the word employer-employee because that means compensation, life insurance, workman's comp, time off. That did not happen with slavery. And so these slaves looked, as I said, with expectation. And they began to understand the word freedom. And if you look up Reedy Chapel, the oldest church there, the slave church, they in fact began to march and to leave to their freedom. 
didn't know what employee-employee meant, but they knew what freedom meant. And so as we begin to capture the reparations and the healing, think about freedom. Juneteenth is the first H.R. 40 to study slavery and develop reparation proposals, which we have been advocating for because it addressed the disparities of the 21st century. And it looks at slavery, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. It looks at the actions of Hayne and the actions of the government in sanctioning horrors that happened. We do not look at this commission in anger. We look at it for the research and the capacity for repair and restoration. And that is what I know that you will discuss today, as well as the outstanding speakers that you will have will talk about the economic disparities, $17,000 uh, for a black family to 171000 for a white family, the disparities in criminal justice, disparities in housing. But as I close, let me be very clear. Uh, we in America, we love America. We love freedom. We don't want the ills. And what we are hoping to repair is to fix the government-sanctioned discrimination. And so we are pushing an executive order based upon the foundation of almost 217 congressional co-sponsors. We want the White House to collaborate with us on an executive order to bring that harmony to this nation, to understand those who fought in civil wars and wars beyond, who died and shed their blood, law enforcement, first responders who are, in fact, from this community. Happy Juneteenth, but it is somber in recognizing that it was the freeing of slaves. And it is my humble appreciation to salute you for this conference today. Happy Juneteenth, and let us pass H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals. The Honorable Sheila Jackson Lee, and she's on a mission. And by the way, executive order, we, 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 we have piled up. There are people on this stage who have worked to build more co-sponsors than ever before in the history of this bill. We know that it will not get through the Senate. Everybody knows the drill. Y'all are why. Y'all know what the deal is. You can't get nothing through the Senate. And so it can, but it can be done by executive order. And we had really asked Biden to do it by today. But if not today, we want a sign. We want a signal of when. Because we can't wait any longer. We ain't waiting no longer. Because we had waited all these many years. Our ancestors scream out for repair, for reparatory justice. One of the people who has, that we know, has talked about the damages and the harm that has been inflicted not only to our ancestors but that, that, that flows unfortunately across generations. The, the science now tells us that the, that the damages, the harm is in our genes. That it is passed on from generation to generation. It's one of the reasons why we were susceptible more than anybody else to COVID, frankly. But one of the persons who came onto the scene with the notion of post-traumatic slavery syndrome, took it by storm, took it, fired everybody up to understand it, was Dr. Joy DeGruy, who now joins us by recorded message. Hello, my name is Dr. Joy DeGruy, 
and I'm very pleased to be with you today on Juneteenth. I am honored uh, to be part of this commemoration. I'm only sorry I cannot be there with you in person. The work that uh, myself and a number of individuals and groups uh, literally around the world are engaged in um, are around issues of healing and reparations. My work is around, around healing principally, and I think there is a little mythology around what what is required with healing is though healing can occur outside of justice. And so these are things that are go hand in hand. And part of what my group is doing, my team of folks, is we're doing something called the Be the Healing Symposiums. We've done four of them in major cities across the United States, uh, and we have one remaining that we will be doing in Atlanta at the end of this month. Uh, these are two-day symposiums open free to the public as a result of a generous uh, grant from the MacArthur Foundation. And what we've been able to do in these two days in this symposium is really uh, create a love fest. It, it and the first day of the symposium uh, is really committed to educating people, helping folks understand uh, systemic racism, historical trauma, and contemporary trauma, and how that has weighed on us and how that's showing up in our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our spirits. Uh, and, the, and the goal here is to help people understand the nature of the injury because you can't heal what you don't understand. And so following that uh, rather thick and lengthy presentation, we have breakout sessions. And I have trained facilitators uh, that are there to manage any kind of triggering that may happen as a result of this very, very weighty information, but also to have a conversation to break into groups and talk about um, how, they're, how they're seeing themselves being able to use this information, um, what is, how it's showing up inside of their minds, what do they want to do, what do they want to change as they move forward. These are the kinds of, of, of questions that we, we put forth. And day two of the symposium uh, is really committed totally to healing. And the focus of this is a solution-oriented kind of lens. And we're looking at what are some of the practical things that we can learn? What are the improvement strategies uh, that we can employ? What are we doing with our children and our communities? How can we um, hold schools and other institutions accountable? All of this becomes part of those healing strategies. Uh, the goal, of course, is to ensure that uh, there is continuous uh, growth and improvement and that it's sustainable healing so that we, one, understand so we can begin to look at the residual impacts of all of these generations of trauma, starting, of course, uh, with American shadow slavery, uh, and then also taking a look at uh, what are some of the contemporary traumas that we continue uh, to experience as a result of anti-blackness and racial terrorism. And so I, I, I believe that the symposiums, and thus far we've had an incredible response, pre and post surveys, to kind of figure out where people start, uh, where they are, where they want to go. Um, and that has all been quite positive um, and encouraging and exciting. Uh, we've also had uh, youth panels that have come in and talked to us about um, what's going on with them and how they are experiencing uh, this time, this very, very uh, intense time, as you know. And clearly, the well, the, the assault has not stopped, so we, we need to really be pragmatic about what we're doing in our, in our homes and 
uh, with our families and with our community. So to that end, I think that the other piece that's important for people to understand about Juneteenth, and, and of course I know my, uh, my fellow um, scholars and um, my incredible brothers and sisters that are putting this on have really uh, showed you and made the case for understanding why it's important to understand Juneteenth. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, some mythology around slavery. And so part of what happened is we have this belief that slavery ended and, uh, I don't know, somehow the playing field got leveled and everything was fine. Well, the first thing that happened is it didn't end. We had peonage. And this is really important to recognize how the past impacts the present. So we're looking at how the residual impacts of slavery show up uh, with peonage, unlawful selling of people back into slavery. And by the way, we never got the 40 acres or the mule. <laughs> okay, that never happened. Then we had black coats freed blacks were still not welcome. So they had sundown laws and black codes and exclusionary acts, official and unofficial. Then we had, you know, uh, folks forced, you want to know where uh, mass incarceration started, started with convict leasing because they wanted to have that cheaper labor force so they started arresting black folks for loitering uh, 15 years for startling a white woman, looking menacingly at a white woman. Right? So these things were big business then. It sustained white communities and white people, but it does today. We don't even realize how many industries, how many uh, organizations to this date are really still utilizing um, and exploiting prison labor. So that's happening to this day. So when we start looking at um, our displacement consistent with slavery, segregation, redlining, urban renewal and now gentrification, right? So what we're looking at is a, is a process of, of, of behaviors and laws that have consistently terrorized us. And so what we need to do is first understand. First it is to know and then it is to do. You cannot heal what you don't understand. And believe me, this is not something that can happen in a lab or in a clinic where we sit down. We're not broken people. We are, we are people that have been and continually are assaulted. And we've got to, number one, stop that assault, prevent the future harm of our children. And then we have to ensure a continuous improvement. We have to ensure that there is sustained healing sustained well-being. That's what this work is all about. That's what my work is all about, is to make sure that I can look in the faces of young people and say to them as their elder, I got you. I got you. So what I want to say in closing is I, um, is, is, is I love you all. I, I know we're in a real difficult time right now, but it's a pregnant time, and this too shall pass. And given what we have we've experienced, I know we got this moving forward. So I want you to be safe, to be well, and to be the healing. Thank you so very much. All right, Dr. Joy DeGroove, if you will. And that was a, what we call a framing presentation around the notion of healing. And one of the things that she talked about was People don't associate necessarily reparations with something like gentrification. But I think I may have mentioned at the beginning or somewhere along the line, it is reparations are for 
enslavement, yes, but all of the legacies. And one of the things I've been thinking about, even in terms of a city like Washington, D.C., we sometimes, and I've been guilty of, of this sometimes, talking about accomplishments and what we should do and what we ain't doing and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at urban renewal, the Negro removal program, we called it of the 20th century, prosperous black communities like Buffalo, the, the southeast side of Buffalo, I may be saying, saying the wrong side of town, but I think it's what that's the, in Buffalo. They, they, the east side, they shot, they, they shot, and you just came from there, they shot right up through the middle of that city, that town, dividing us. And then when you look at a city like Washington, D.C., the last colony, and not the, one of the last colonies, we have to remember Puerto Rico and so forth and so on, but this is like, does not have its independence. It was once Chocolate City. It was not Chocolate City no more because of dis the displacement of black people and black culture. So we have to also, that is also do reparations. That's right, give it up. So now we'd like to bring to the podium for a framing statement on the issue of reparations and healing, but with more of an emphasis on reparations a very, very dynamic, visionary, strong brother who's come up through the movement, mentored by many, is emerging and has emerged really as a major thought leader and a major proponent and scholar, understanding reparations and all of its dimensions, particularly in terms of international law and its applications. Uh, he is none other than Cam Howard. Uh, Cam Howard is the former male chair of Encobra, a legacy organization. Uh, he now comes speaking for Reparations United. Would you please welcome Cam Howard. Thank you, Dr. Daniels. <laughs> and as Dr. Daniels stated, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is an extraordinary leader for us in this, on this national fight to be repaired in this country. I want to welcome everyone to the Global Circle of Reparations and Healing Juneteenth program entitled Building a Culture of Repair. In my remarks, I want to invoke the memory and the teachings of our brilliant multi-genius ancestor, Dr. Sheik Antejo, who some refer to as Diop. Dr. Job single-handedly defeated the entire Western academic world, proving that the pyramid builders of ancient Kemet, that they called Egypt, were as African as you and I. Dr. Job used the disciplines of chemistry, utilizing the science of carbon dating, measuring the melanin and carbon content in the skin of the mummies. He utilized history, researching ancient records to see what the Kemetic people said about themselves and what contemporary writers who lived outside of Kemet were writing about him. He utilized linguistics and the etymology of words, learning the Kemetic language and linking it to modern day African languages like those of his own language, Wolof, that's spoken all the way on the other side of the continent in the country of Senegal. 
He added to his proof utilizing anthropology and the origins of humanity and civilization and culture, and he even debunked their own ultra-racist field of Egyptology, again, mastering the ancient language of our ancestors. And he gave all of this multidisciplinary research to us in his book, Introduction to African Civilization. The title of that book was Radical and Revolutionary at the time because European academia were saying that Africa and Africans didn't have a history. In fact, they were saying we didn't even enter into history until they, the Europeans, came into Africa to civilize us. So we are here today talking about building a culture repair because of their so-called civilization. And I want to say that again because I really want that to sink in today. We're talking about building a culture of repair because of their civilization. In one of Dr. Job's other books called Civilization of Barbarism, he asks and answers the question scientifically of whether or not what we're experiencing today as civilization high culture is really a complex and sophisticated system of structured barbarism. Among other things in his books, he says that a culture of a people, any people, is composed of three main components, because we're talking about building a culture of repair. So the culture of a people is, is composed of three main components, the collective consciousness of the people, the language of the people, and the ethos or spiritual psycho, psychological component of the people. It's what Dr. Amos Wilson would call the collective personality of a people. And as we are here building this culture of repair, we too must focus on these three components of culture. First, collective consciousness. Collective consciousness is composed of the historical memory. What do the people know and think about their past, their present, and their future? Collective consciousness is the shared knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of a people's relationship to one another, to others, to the environment, to the world. For this conversation today on a culture of repair, what is the shared historical memory, the shared system of consciousness that we must build upon and what we are building upon in this movement in America? I refer to this shared consciousness as reparations one, two, three. At the World Conference Against Racism held in Durban, South Africa, the international community gave us a model a paradigm of thought and action from which we build our collective reparations consciousness upon. That motto is one, crimes were committed. The transatlantic slave trade, enslavement, apartheid, it was called Jim Crow in this country, were in fact crimes against humanity. They were not just immoral acts. They were crimes against humanity. So number one in reparations one, two, three is crimes were committed. Number two, injuries have resulted from those crimes. Wherever you see racial disparities, you see an injury resulting from those crimes. So number two in reparations, one, two, three, is injuries. And number three is just a logical deduction. If crimes were committed and injuries resulted, then repair is necessary. So one, crimes, two, injuries, three, repairs. This model that we got from Durban is the basis of our collective consciousness on how we move in this country around the issue of reparations. That's what we build our shared understanding and knowledge upon as we continue to act to not only win reparations but deliver repair of resources to our people. The second component of culture 
or the culture of repair is the language of repair. What's the language that we must be using today? It comes from that above model, crimes in America. There were three periods of crimes, the period of enslavement, period of Jim Crow segregation, and this neo-apartheid period that we're in today. The injuries was more than just the wealth gap. Don't let everybody you know, get you focused on the wealth gap. It's all the racial gaps and disparities resulting from anti-blackness, white supremacy, white nationalism, genocide, apartheid, and plunder. The third language is poor reparations. It is necessary that we engage in as many projects, policies, and programs for as long as it's necessary to repair the developmental difficulties, differences, and disparities we experience. Full reparations is an international concept that has five components, cessation and guarantees of non-repetition, restitution and repatriation, compensation, satisfaction, and rehabilitation. A fourth concept that we must be using all the time is crimes against humanity, as I talked about. These are the most egregious crimes that a government can commit against a civilian population. And most importantly, crimes against humanity do not have a statute of limitation that bar us from how long we can bring this, this, this crime to justice. Number five, our comprehensive eligibility. We get this, eligibility has been debated around the country right now, and we get this term comprehensive from my sister Jam, who you're going to hear from later, but it flows effortlessly from the Durban model. Whoever the crimes or harms were committed against, they or their descendants are eligible for redress for those specific crimes of those specific periods. These were complete systems of social control and inherently all were affected either socially, economically, physically, emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually. There was no escaping. That's why the National African American Reparations Commission says all black people harmed in America should be repaired in America by America. So as, as we advance the movement, it's important that we are speaking the same language, the same reparation language to each other and to those who have harmed us. This brings us to our last component of building the cultural repair, the reparations ethos. I want to go back to Dr. Jope for a minute in his book, Civilization and Barbarism. Dr. Jope has what he called a two-cradle theory of civilization, where civilizations were birthed and nurtured. One cradle he calls the southern cradle, Africa. The other cradle is the northern cradle, Europe. When people first came together in these cradles, they developed a civilization out of the conditions of the environment they lived in. In the south, Africa, food was plentiful not so in the north. The climate was pleasing in the south, not so in the north. Nature was giving, nurturing, nourishing, and abundant in the south, again, not so in the north. As a result, Dr. Job says, a collective personality, particular to those cradles, were born. In the north, the ethos was warring and aggressive, xenophobic, which means the hatred of strangers and hostile. In the South, it was communal, harmonious with nature, xenophilia, and welcoming. So in essence, as we are building our cultural repair, our ethos has to be one where we go back to the origins of our civilization, the origins of collectivism, communalism, 
and cooperativeness, utilizing the African people principle, the greatest good for the greatest number of African people. The ethos of tribalism that is taking place in the reparations movement now must not allow to flourish if we are truly going to build a culture repairing America, a culture repairing the world. So again, our ethos, our collective personality is one that says all black people harmed in America by America should be repaired in America by America. And by extension, all black people harmed by global anti-Africanists must be repaired wherever they are, regardless of their place of birth. Repair is determined by the place of injury. I'm Cam Howard of Reparations United, and we are the Global Circle of Reparations and Healing. Thank you. All right, brother, you're allowed to drop the mic. <laughs> Brilliant presentation as expected, and I'm going to tell you who's, who's looking at what he's looking at and saying, Dr. Leonard Jeffries is looking at you, brother, he said, because you know Dr. Leonard Jeffries loves him some chair after chair after Dion. Now we want to get into our panel discussion. We were going to hear a little bit of the sounds of blackness, but I'm trying to create a little bit more space to hear from our panel. And so what I'm going to do first is I want each of the panel to self-introduce themselves. So I'm going to start from Boyd and Jam and Kichi Taifa and Dr. Malvo. You can self-introduce yourself, a little bit about your work, tight, crisp, but everybody know who you are. So Dr. Lloyd, you have the mic. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Dr. Good afternoon. <laughs> this is call and response, right? We mung, we mung our people? Okay, I just, I just, I just want to be sure. I just want to check in. Thank you for that. Uh, my name is Dr. John D. Lloyd. I am the Interim Executive Director for Community Healing Network. Um, Community Healing Network is very excited and delighted to be a part of the uh, Global Reparations Group here that you see today. And um, a little bit about what we do. We are on the healing side. We focus a lot of our work on healing and emotional reparation, really, is the way that we like to frame that. Um, so healing from a very spiritual, psychological um, perspective. Um, we're really trying to understand that and educate folks that there's a false narrative out there. There's this white lie that white people are superior and black people are inferior. That is completely false. And what we do through our work is we bring folks together in black-only spaces to talk about issues that impact us, impact our communities, um, and hopefully lift up people, make them feel good, make them feel that they're part of something, they're part of this change. Um, we also have... Um, Ubuntu, uh, rapid response circles in which where there's some sort of racial crisis that's happening across this country and there's so many to pick and choose from, we have a team that goes out there in that community to work with folks on the ground to support that community. So I'll pause there and I'll pass it over. very much. All right. Jessica Ann Mitchell, also known as Jam. She be jamming too. Well, can hear me well. I'm Jessica Ann Mitchell I Wuyor, but that's long, so we go with JAM. Um, I'm the founder of the National Black Cultural Information Trust, 
where we share news, resources, and information that uplift the collective freedom of black communities, but also challenges cultural misinformation. One of the um, enduring harms of enslavement was erasure, where the identity of our ancestors was constantly pus pushed to be erased by these harmful systems because they knew that within the identity of our ancestors was strength. And that erasure is currently still going on. Uh, so at, and it's also unfortunately infiltrating some parts of the reparation space. Um, so what we do at NBCI Trust is push back on that and promote the narratives of our ancestors' full identities and cultures and everything that we as black America are built on. Um, and so just like yesterday, we go to different community events as well in the DMV. Yesterday we were giving out Juneteenth coloring books to children in Waldorf, Maryland, and also giving out uh, different types of uh, children's books that start at the Civil War or, or the Emancipation Era all the way up until now. But that's just part of the work that we do and we're just super excited to be a part of the Global Circle for Healing Reparations. All right, damn. Greetings and salutations. Happy Juneteenth, Happy Father's Day, and reparations now. All right. <laughs> My name is Nikichi Taifa. I'm an attorney, I'm an author, I'm a scholar, and I am an activist. I've been working on issues of reparations for over 50 years. Yes, five years. You know, we don't crap. <laughs> uh, ever since I was a teenager selling Black Panther newspapers on the streets of Washington, uh, D.C., I sat at the feet of many of the elders of the reparations movement, many of whom are no longer with us, but are with us on the ancestral plane, such as Queen Mother Moore, who started out with the Garvey movement, who's kept the issue of reparations alive throughout her entire uh, life. Uh, Brother Imari Obadeli, Brother Chokwe Lumumba, these were folks that were part of the black power movement, which, from which actually the modern day reparations movement uh, sprang. Um, I am a, a founding member of one of the founding members of INCOBA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, founded in 1987, worked very closely with Congressman John Conyers in fashioning H.R. 40. I am an inaugural commissioner on NARC, the National African American Reparations uh, Commission, and I am the director of the Reparation Education Project, which seeks to bring value to the broadening field of, of reparations. I have a TED Talk that I did uh, several weeks ago. Please go to YouTube and pull up my name or just pull up Reparations TED Talk and you'll see a number four, but wait till you see my name. Okay, Nikichi uh, Taifa. And I uh, uh, have a book that will be coming out very soon called Reparations on Fire, How and Why It's Spreading Across America. And in, in conclusion, in the appendix of that book will be the text of a book I co-authored in 1987 with Imari Obadeli and Chokwe Lumumba, both of whom are now ancestors, called Reparations Yes, Legal and Political Reasons Why Our Ancestors Should Be Paid in Us for, I forgot the long title, <laughs> it was 1987, but we are, I am reproducing the text of that book as part of the appendix of Reparations on Fire. Thank you very much. Hi, Eva. <laughs> All right. Well, happy Sunday, y'all. Happy Sunday. I'm not
to go say happy Juneteenth. I am happy that it's Juneteenth, but I have bittersweetness about this day. I first of all want to give honor to our pastor. Thank you so much for letting us into your house. And of course, I bring greetings from my pastor, Reverend William Lamar. And I think of you often. We had a conversation at the airport years ago. And you told I need to go find me a, a church. And I did. I came by here a couple times that you were preaching from a PowerPoint. And I wasn't feeling that. <laughs> so I went over to Pastor Lamar, who don't use a PowerPoint. But I love you anyway, and I've been back every now and then. Uh, but thank you for bringing us here. Of course, Dr. D, thank you for all that you do. This brother is a long-distance runner underestimates him. What I said about him recently on the occasion of his 80th birthday is uh, I would ask for 80 more, but that would be greedy because he can't do 80 more. Nobody can. Even the good Lord didn't do any. He only did 33. But, <laughs> but this brother is with us. He's in it to win it. I want to also just basically acknowledge all of our panelists. I am Dr. Julianne Malveaux. I am an economist, author, dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at Cal State LA, inaugural dean of the yes. College of Ethnic Studies at Cal State LA, which has Pan-African Studies, Chicano-Latino Studies, and Asian-Asian-American Studies reporting to me. I also am starting a Department of American Indian Studies. Watch me grin, y'all. Uh, that was a little bit of a struggle, but we got it going on. I am an economist, as I said, and economics is about the study of who gets what, when, where, and how. Who gets what, when, where, and why, and what we know is that the foundation of this putrid nation, yes, I did say putrid nation, is enslavement that there would be nothing here were there not enslavement, that there's utter denial about the in, basically the contribution that enslavement has made to our country. Now, I ain't mad at white folks, because most working class white folks weren't even in it. What I'm mad at is predatory capitalism, is a system that extracts surplus value from people. And so I love what Joy DeGroy said. She's a sister friend. She is brilliant. She is really talking about us coming together. But in order for us to come together, we must tell the truth. Understand that when Sheila Jackson Lee and her colleagues introduced, res um, int uh, introduced legislation for Juneteenth, it passed by unanimous consent in the Senate, but about six of those devils had stuff to say on the side. I, we all know this is the radical left. And 14 Republican Congress people voted against Juneteenth. And one of the fools said, this is about critical race theory. No, it's not. Pastor, since I'm in your church, I'm going to try to watch my adjectives. Uh, <laughs> therefore, it's just about the you-know-what truth. And those who know me well know what you-know-what might be. Could be anything. Well, but what I'm saying is these folks, until we deal with the truth, we cannot heal. We must deal with the basic utter truth. And here's the truth. What Joy said, what Joy DeGry said, what others have said, first of all, we was late. My grandmother, who was from uh, Mississippi, would never celebrate Juneteenth because she said it was a celebration of black people being late. Now, we, she died in 1974. <laughs> Hey, my grandmother was a trip. She also said that they, there was no moonwalk, that they were just in Las Vegas and, uh, <laughs> and walking through the desert. She was a trip. But anyway, Grandma Rosie Elizabeth Nelson, I called her out. But, but let me say that she wouldn't celebrate it, but we do celebrate. 
But what Joy DeGroy said, which is important, is this. Enslavement did not end in when um, they came from Galveston. Enslavement is still going on. There are some companies, Ron, I know you're about to cut me off, but let me just say this one thing. Okay, McDonald's, <laughs> Wendy's, Walmart, Starbucks, Sprint, Verizon, Victoria's Secret, Fidelity, they are still using convict labor to get profits. I'm not going to repeat them. They go, let me repeat it again. But let's be clear. Enslavement is not over. Our people are still being enslaved. And the legacy of economic envy, which I know Brother Daniels is going to let me talk about a bit later, the legacy of economic envy is that whenever we get one cent, someone who wants to take two cents back. We must be clear that we live. It's not new. We live in a culture of anti-blackness, a culture of attacks on our people, and we have to stop it and our allies. And I want to give a shout out to our white and other brothers and sisters in the room. Thank you for being here. Bring your friends next time. Dr. Julianne Malvo. So Cam, even though you spoke, if you got a short one, I mean, you know, like a short one, you can drop it on us. You got a mic? That's your mic. Yes, my name is Cam Howard. Uh, I'm a, a three-time um, voted in national male co-chair of Cobra. I've uh, been in the reparations movement perhaps about 16, 17 years. Um, came in the movement when uh, there was a mass exodus from the movement because of uh, a lawsuit that we had filed uh, in 2005. It was denied. Um, the judge stated that we did not have status uh, to bring a lawsuit, standing, I'm sorry, to bring a lawsuit, and that kind of took the air out of the movement. The 9-11 attacks took the air out of the movement, but we, we struggled, continued to raise this issue, a repair, and I was fortunate enough to uh, take part with NARC and Kichi and uh, co-author the federal legislation that we're pushing now, uh, H.R. 40. We revised it from a study bill to remedy bill, which the goal is to craft the proposals necessary to alleviate or repair all of those disparities that we exist, that we see among uh, our communities and the dominant community in this country. And so I now, um, the director of Reparations United, which is an organization that will look at particular injuries that, I, that communities across the country share and we'll look for proposals and ways that we can come together as in our own spaces and build out proposals and structures that begin to deliver that repair to our people. And so uh, I'm excited. This is a very exciting time to be in the movement. Uh, thank you all for coming, and hopefully uh, what is shared from this panel will cause you to become more active. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Um, so now we want to we want to have a conversation. Um, I was mentored and tutored by one of the panelists to have this style of, of conversation, none other than Nkichi Taifa. She's the first one I ever heard say guided conversation which is a good way of doing it, rather than everybody just speaking and having it on and so forth. Just have a conversation and pull it out. And uh, I, I probably need to keep my mic live because when I tap on it, that means you are talking too long. I don't want to have to step over there because I will do that. I've been known to do that because we really want to leave time 
for you to step forward and you know, a limited number of people can get everybody to give your suggestions more than anything else. You may have questions and we can answer those questions later. But we want to hear what you think. We want to hear your ideas. Some of you are active, some of you are organizers. We want to get your opinions. So the first thing I want to do is give a quick reaction to the framing statements. You heard Dr. Joy DeGruy, you of course heard Sheila Jackson Lee, you heard Cam Howard. If you have thoughts about what they said, what it triggered in your mind in terms of, of substance, uh, in terms of where we are and where we should be going from your perspective. Or you can just pivot and start talking about whatever you choose to talk about. But I wanted to begin with a kind of response uh, from them. So we'll talk, start with you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Lloyd. Well, I, I definitely feel that the uh, CAMS presentation um, really resonated with me on a lot of levels. I think that, you know, thinking about the atrocities that our people have suffered over the generations and how there needs to be an accounting for that, um, and we need to address that. Injuries were, were, were suffered, and we need to be able to uh, come together and figure out what is the best way for us as a people to A, heal, but B, to B, somehow receive some sort of reparations for this generational, um, you know, hurt and pain and enslavement. Um, just, it, 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 it is so pervasive in almost every aspect of our lives and it affects our people um, to uh, the nth degree, that we need to do something. And I really appreciated exactly uh, the way that you had put that. Uh, Jan? I really think hard on um, Dr. DeGruz, um post-traumatic slave syndrome. Um, but I also think about the flip side. Like I really believe this country suffers from post-traumatic enslaver syndrome where they where so many firmly believe we are owed nothing we are do nothing that what happened was just the past and we should let it go meanwhile we are still enduring those crimes against humanity and the legacies of them and so I still um, wonder how we can break through that false narrative because with this post-traumatic enslaver syndrome that's connected to all of these harms people ask is everything about race and we know yeah it basically is in this country but like when you look at the history of tipping when you look at the look at why we're not increasing uh, the federal minimum wage why we have people that are working in prisons for these corporations, all of it is part of that post-traumatic enslavement syndrome, not wanting to let it go, mm. not wanting to fully acknowledge black people as full human beings with our own rights and agency. And in my mind, it's like this struggle between post-traumatic slave syndrome and post-traumatic, I guess, enslaver syndrome and how we combat that to get our full repair. All right, okay, Sister Nkishi. Uh, so thank you very much for those framing statements. And um, I think for both um, Joy, 
DeGruy and uh, Cam Howard. George DeGruy talked about the importance of his uh, historical memory, and Cam talked about uh, no, uh, yeah. yeah um, uh, what Joy talked about basically, you cannot repair, which unless you know what needs to be repaired. And I think Cam spoke about uh, historical memory, and both of those themes resonated with me, particularly when I look at what I always quote from Mamie Till Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till, back in 19. Uh, 55, who demanded an open casket for the world to see what had been done to her son. And she m demanded this open casket because she said that she did not want his memory mm -hmm. swept under the rug. She wanted the world to see and to know. She wanted that historical, um, um, uh, you know, memory. She wanted folks to know just what the harm was, just what the injury was. And I say down to this day, we are still trying to open up these caskets so we can know the harm. Many of these things I'm just learning now, many of them. You know, I knew about Tulsa back in 1985, actually, when the bomb was dropped on MOVE in Philadelphia, and someone said, well, that's not the first time a bomb was dropped. And regardless of whether you think there was actually a bomb on uh, Tulsa, there was stuff being flown from the air and, 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 and from airplanes, if you put it that way. But many folk are just learning about Tulsa over the past year or so. Okay, many of us, I didn't know anything about Elaine, Arkansas, until Nasher African American Reparations uh, Commission went into Elaine, Arkansas, and exposed uh, all of that. I only knew about Rosewood because uh, John Singleton did a, 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 a movie, a Hollywood movie on Rosewood, and it really opened up my uh, eyes. And then when I heard about Wilmington, North Carolina, that again was a, was a result of a documentary. So we need to begin to really wholesale open up these caskets so like the little people, like the little girls right there, the little twins right there will know our history. This is not the time to take black history out of the schools. Mm. This is the time to inundate our schools and all like that with, all right. with our history. Thank you. All right. Give it up. Give it up. All right. Caskets. Dr. Julianne Malvo. Okay, folks. I appreciate everybody's passion, and I certainly appreciate the framing statements, Cam, that was so very comprehensive and important to put it in the context of the history. And that's what we're losing now. What we're getting is a resistance to history. And uh, when Sheila called out the name, and I can call her Sheila, she's my friend. She is Congresswoman, but I can also call her Sheila. We've broken bread together. Um, when she called out the name of the sister who detailed her oppression, what happened to her? You, a chill has to go through your body. And I don't care whether you're black or white or Latino, Asian, a chill has to go through your body when you think of a woman being brutalized so. But in order to brutalize, you must first dehumanize. Mm. And that's literally what has happened. If you look back at the history, initially black people were brought here enslaved, white were brought here as indentured servants. No distinction was made between them until a point in time when it became clear that we could be exploited by the color of our skin. Before that, we were, you, you could even go into Virginia and find records of interracial marriage. You could go into Virginia and into North Carolina and find relations between people who are not the wealthy, 
being relatively equivalent. Not completely, but relatively. But then when you fast forward it to where they began to codify inferiority with a narrative, as Jam says, a narrative about our inferiority, that gave them permission to basically dehumanize and then from dehumanize, exploit. Therefore, David Walker's appeal is one of the most important pieces of historical literature that you will ever read because he talked about appealing to white people, appealing for our humanity. In 1832, in North Carolina, a law was passed that said to teach a slave to read is to excite dissatisfaction to the detriment of the general population. Now, I used that when I became president of Bennett College as my opening statement to talk about why education of black people, and especially black women, because when black women learn, our children learn, but why that was so very important. But let, let's connect a couple of dots. So to teach a slave to read is to excite dissatisfaction, but some people say, you want to hide something from a black person, put it in a book. Now, is there some inconsistency up in here? Meanwhile, those who taught enslaved people to read, black people were flogged up to 50 times for teaching someone to read. White people were fined up to then $200, which today would be like 10 grand, for teaching someone to read. So meanwhile, you want to hire two black person to put in a book. No, nah, you are afraid of me being up in a book. You are frightened of what I will learn when I've been up in a book. And this is what we need to deal with when we're dealing with this. So Oklahoma, the site of Tulsa, was one of the first states to pass a law forbidding so-called critical race theory. Now he ain't gonna give me enough time to break that all down to tell you they don't teach it K through 12. They don't even teach it in higher ed often. We have it in an upper division class at Cal State LA. You can't come in as a fresh person and say, I wanna take a class on critical race theory because we don't have it. You might get introduction to Pan-African Studies, something like that, but you're not gonna get that. So these people have created a narrative that allows them to replace reality. And this is reality. Predatory capitalism is oppressive. It allows people to extract surplus value from others. Listen to me, y'all, when I tell you, this is not just about black people. We're the basis of it. But white women, y'all didn't have nothing either. I'm in church, so I didn't say what I was going to say. I said nothing. <laughs> Pastor, you're a powerful influence here. <laughs> you know, other poor white men. Y'all couldn't, if you, if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote either. So let's just call, this is about the, the, the maintenance of economic hegemony against the rest of us. And those poor white people, I don't understand poor white folks who vote against their economic interests in order to vote for their racial interests. You cannot eat white. You cannot put peanut butter on white. White bread made it, not white. So how you voting for that orange orangutan who essentially is not going to have his grandbabies play with your grandbabies? How do you do that? You do that because you get some pecuniary value from whiteness. Right. And we're, we have to unpack that. We're, we're, we're going to unpack that a little bit more in, in a minute, Ashley. I want to flesh that theme out. That's, 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 that's okay. That's all right. Uh, Cam, uh, your, your, your thoughts about, I don't know if you, you can't reflect on yourself necessarily, <laughs> but you may want to reflect on Dr. Guru or whatever you've heard at this point. Yes, yeah, so as she stated, uh, 
healing, you can't have healing without justice. And that really resonated with me because what we are, and I go back to the can, language. Can I, can I say a bit about that, yeah. to tease that out a bit? And I say that because there is a way in which I think white America, but sometimes even black folk, there's a sense that, you know, reconciliation comes first. And so when the tragedy occurred in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, people would say, oh, look how they, they forgive so easily. And it's, and it, and it's the sense, it's the sense that somehow or another that reconciliation is the order of the day. And, and, and dare I say that some of that comes out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where, and it became popularized in this country. And so it's almost as like, it's like reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation. And, and, and it calls on our people to suffer, and then there are people who look at us and they, they marvel at our suffering. So I just wanted to just amplify that a little bit because I think it's an important point to, to, to tease out. Sure. So rep reconciliation actually benefits the perpetrator of the crime. It's more than it benefits the, the person whose the crime has been committed against. It gives them a feeling of wholeness or, or humanity. Uh, so it really doesn't affect the, in fact, it can traumatize, re-traumatize mm -hmm. those who have been affected by whatever injury or whatever crime has been committed. But white America wants us to just get past, get past what has happened to us as if time itself is going to heal. And we see that the injuries have accumulated more and more over time as opposed to healing over time. And so, if you, and that goes back to what you say, you can't have healing without justice. You, there has to be inserted within the communities of harm specifically targeted resources to address those injuries so that healing can take place. So you want healing to take place, but there's no resources targeted toward the, the illness. It, it can't happen. There has to be justice before there's healing. And so and, and one particular area that we know to be, we're understanding now, the area of transgenerational um, inheritance, um, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, where the environment affects the epigenome of the gene and the environment that's traumatic will affect it over several generations, three, four, five, six generations. We know in mice it could be up to six generations. That's the transgenerational component. So we cannot just leave things to themselves and think it's going to be healed. It's not going to happen. And now we have the science to show this. That, that really resonated. You cannot have healing in this country. You cannot have equality, equity, anything like that in this country unless targeted resources are directed for those particular injuries and those targeted resources is reparations. All right, okay. Um, that's right, y'all can say amen, y'all can clap. That's right. So now I want to take on this question um, because you do hear a lot of times, we're on radio shows, whatever, you hear white people rich, not so rich, poor, whatever, they'll say, well, I had nothing to do with this. 
why, why should I be involved? Why should my tax dollars be involved? And, and it'd be some of them poor white folks too, Dr. Malvo. I contend that even they, that all white people in this country benefited from enslavement, all of them. But I want our panelists to talk about that so that our, I want our panel so that our audience, to the degree that they may not, will have the ammunition when they're confronted with that to be able to challenge that, to talk about why it is that in one way or another, and it's really not in some ways not even personal, but, but that all white people benefited from the enslavement of our ancestors. I don't know who wants to, to start. No, 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 in case you wanted to drop first. I'm going to let Nikisha drop first. And now you go first. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, as I said in my uh, TED Talk, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Although the present generation of whites may be innocent of what their forefathers and their foremothers did, as a race, they stand in a privileged position as a result of the actions of their predecessors. Each generation, each generation passes its debts as well as its assets along to the next uh, generation. The heritage which whites in this country enjoy is what has been called white skin privilege, benefiting from a society, a state, a structural, social structure which is governed by white supremacy. And although we may debate the who, what, when, why, and how, I'll just use your term, of, um, uh, of measurement, there is no question that whites in this country, no matter how rich or poor they are, no matter when they came, benefit from the fruits of over 400 years of unjust uh, enrichment. You know, the, all people in this society, all non-black people, benefit from the structure of predatory capitalism. If you look at that structure, it's not personal at all. So someone who comes and says, well, I never had any slaves, not in the 21st century, you didn't. But if you were in a mine, working in the mine next to a black person who was making half your wage, somehow there was something that you privileged that you inherited. But I, and I prefer in Kichi, and I think we should be, begin to unpack how we use language. I was in Buffalo, and I mean, I don't cry much. And someone told me I was like a toasted marshmallow. Hard on the outside, a little soft on the inside, but hard as you know what on the outside. Pastor, I ain't going there. But in any case, I, but I, I, I cried at what happened when our people talked about how this white boy went and found the zip code where he could find most black people at the grocery store. And one of the most humane things you can do, go get you some GD groceries. Okay, I almost slipped. <laughs> Just go get you some eggs and some bacon and some, you know, whatever. But the fact is that that is a structure that has allowed this kind of resentment and economic envy. And we can't look, we're not mad at the people until they start picking up guns and coming to our Mother Emanuel Church AME in South Carolina. They're, we're mad at a structure that has systematically oppressed. And what we have to deal with is a structure. And here's what we know. We know white folks who know better, but they are benefiting. When we look at this Congress, look, not just look at the Senate and look at who's making money. Joe Manchin is a multimillionaire, not because he's exploiting black people, but because he's exploiting white people. He, he, they, they're not that many of us anymore that are coal miners, but this boy has made millions doing mine work. So wouldn't you talk about, well, I didn't have any slaves, though, but you have a structure that allowed you to exploit. It allowed you to become a landlord while I'm a renter. 
It allowed you to become a supervisor while I'm a line worker. It allowed you to exert your picayune privilege in ways that is why it allowed you to rape my mama, my grandmama, and anybody else. See, you don't get black people who look like me unless white people was crazy, you know, unless they chose to exploit us. And so let's really be clear. When people want to make it personal, it is not personal. It is structural, and you benefited from the structure, and whether you made $1, $5, and a billion dollars, there was a structure that allowed you to benefit where we did not. And fast forward, now you're going to have some white folks tell you, well, yeah, but you got Oprah. You, 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 you know, you got magic. We got black people who are multimillionaires, billionaires, all that. So what y'all complaining about? Well, if you took all Oprah's money and divided by... All the black people each got $3. So it's irrelevant. Yes, there will be exceptionalism, and it's called capitalistic exceptionalism that allows a few to climb up to the top so then they can throw that back at you and say, well, yeah, you got black millionaires. Nothing about a black millionaire has turned, changed the terms and conditions of our economic life. Okay. Anyone else want to address that? Anyone else? Uh, well, I do. I want to add a little something to the mix. <clears throat> Because I think that we need to clarify it even more. And I, I and, and all of you know this, uh, there is a, a white woman, her name is Trina Brown. And she wrote a book and a documentary called Traces of a Trade. So let's go to enslavement. You did not have to enslave people to benefit from enslavement. So for example, if you have, out of New England, the, one of the regions of the country that benefited most from enslavement was not the South. It was up South in New England. Why? Because there was slave trafficking going through something called the triangular trade. And in that triangular trade, it was so robust that what it did was it created an industry in shipbuilding, in textiles. So the point is, even if you were not directly involved in slavery, you got a job in the textile industry. You got a job in the shipbuilding industry, if you understand what I'm saying. So, that for, so you didn't have to be directly involved. You benefited from it. In fact, the classic book on this is, is Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Af uh, Africa, Barclays Bank, uh, Lloyd's of London, all of them. So you got all those employees... They weren't involved in the slave trade directly. They were the beneficiaries of it. And so that's why you have to counter people. It's not about you individually. I was in Youngstown, Ohio, 1956. The Hungarian revolt broke out because it's also about the legacies of enslavement, the exclusionary policies. And when you worked in the steel mills, there was a cap. You could not rise above a certain level. And you had the so-called black, the labor gain, the black jobs, and so forth and so on. In Youngstown, Ohio, there are, there are neighborhoods that are heavy, they, we call them Slovaks, Hungarians, so forth and so on. People came and they went into those neighborhoods. They went into the steel mills where my father worked. He couldn't go above grade, let's say, four. There's five, six, seven, and eight. When they went in, these folks were immediately employed in five, six, seven, and eight. Now, later on, you'll hear them saying, but I had nothing to do with discrimination. Well, you may not have anything to do with discrimination, but you took advantage of the white skin privilege, and you passed that on intergenerationally. And what was a benefit from you was a deficit for our community. 
was a deficit for our community. So we want you to be able to have that information so when people who, well, who are well-meaning make that argument, you can contend with it because all white people. Now here's where the class element comes in, as Dr. Malvo pointed out. You know, the big white folks got more. They benefited disproportionately, more than the poor white folks did. And you can also go into things like the Homestead Act, for example. You know, a lot of land went out. We didn't get the land. White folks got the land. They say, well, we ain't got nothing to do. Yeah, but you got land we couldn't get, and you could pass that on what? Intergenerationally. So we have to be very clear about those concepts. All right. Is it quick? Back. Real quick. <laughs> Let's talk about the Federal Housing Act. Let's talk about the ways that our communities were redlined. Let's talk, let's talk about the GI Bill. Let's talk about the fact that white, only 600 black men in Mississippi were able to go to college on the GI Bill. When they, would go, they had to go appeal to a draft board. And when they appealed, brother man would say, I want to go to college. He said, no, nah, man, you can go to barber school. Okay, so the GI Bill, which transformed working class white people into middle class white people, did not include us. So you, there is a history of legislation, a history of legislation that was deliberately exclusionary. And we need to be clear, your example about your dad and the steel mill is perfect because you talk, because they, and none of these things were written down. I mean, this was, this, it was custom. Black man comes, you're level one. White man comes, you're level five. Black man works at 20 years, you get up to level four. You never get to level five. So all this stuff was about white skin privilege, and I, you know, like I said, I want to unpack, not today, he ain't going to let me, but we want to unpack the terminology of white supremacy. A brother at Buffalo, actually, our bus driver at Buffalo said, he said, y'all need to stop saying that. Stop saying white supremacy because you're allowing them to believe they're supreme. I said, so what we, you call it, he said, call it white insanity. I'm like, all right, we're going to find something better to say, but let's just deal with the fact that we know that all these unwritten rules created the wealth gap that we live in today. Right. Now, by the way, we don't have to go that far because we know we had a beloved ancestor who told us that all the time. And that's Nat, that's right, yes, Nana. Yes, she did. That's right, yes, Nana Patricia did. Newland. When we call out her name because she used to say that all the time. Y'all stop giving it up. Y'all stop it. And in fact, the, the, the Association of Black Psychologists, the Community Healing Network, I'm, I'm pretty sure y'all say the same thing. Stop giving that up. Now, I want to go to, I'm going to turn to another subject that was referenced earlier. Cam Howard said something about the uh, NARC, National African American Reparations Commission, saying that all black people harmed in America by America should be repaired by America in America. And he says that because there is a kind of little controversy brewing because some people are saying that a reparation should be restricted to only those persons uh, who come from the era of enslavement or who can trace their lineage to same. And I think that there are some of us who say that that's not the case. And it's not that we're mad at anybody. It's just that we want to, to talk about you know, many of the things that you've already been talking about. So I want to just open this conversation up for each of you to give your take on this whole question of who should get reparations? Should it be restricted or, or, or how are we seeing that? Okay, I'd like to talk about it. Jam, well, you're right up in that right quick. All right, yes. I'm, I'm always the, the bad person when it comes to this topic, according to some. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about who deserves reparations, it goes back to this initial harm of the erasure 
erasure of identity, erasure of the histories behind what happened. Um, so a lot of times when we have this conversation, people talk about the importance of lineage, but I think really folks that push that are confusing that with nationality, and that's two different things. If we are to talk about the lineage of people that were enslaved in the United States, Africans that were enslaved in the United States, we come from at least 30 different African ethnicities, which automatically would have made the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery in America multi-ethnic. Then on top of that, we had the intra-American slave trade where our ancestors were basically cycled through what is now the United States and different parts of the Caribbean and so forth. So then it becomes multinational. So on top of the descendants of Africans that were enslaved in the United States, like myself, a descendant of Africans enslaved in Georgia and South Carolina, there are people that are of Haitian descent that were, may have not been a part of chattel slavery directly in the United States, but were here early on in the 1800s. Um, the, the author of Lived Every Voice and Sing um, Grandmother is from Haiti. She came mm -hmm. here during um, the Haitian Revolution. So, um, and, but people don't really realize all the interconnectedness. I believe his mother was also raised in, in Barbados um, or somewhere in the Caribbean. And so then we have folks coming into New, we have a whole bunch of different Caribbean influences in Louisiana. The, basically in South Carolina, the, Bar the Bayesians are, are Gullah Geechee, and the Gullah Geechee are Bayesians. <laughs> we, got, we got African Americans, communities that are in Trinidad. We are actually a multinational people, but people don't know that because that history is hidden. It is not taught that we were um, not restricted, well, they tried to restrict us to these borders. Um, in different parts of our history, but it isn't taught that we are more than these borders. Our lineage is more than these borders. Our ancestors are still on the continent of Africa, and they're here in the United States, and they're in Barbados, and in Trinidad, and in Haiti. It was 15,000 African Americans that went to Haiti when they had the chance. Um, so it's, it's so much interconnectedness there, but I think it must be emphasized that the harms that were done to us weren't done, done to us because we were American descendants of slaves because we weren't Americans. Thank we didn't you. become American until the 14th Amendment. We Some were not. Still that we, still we were not that. Americans, and, uh, and men, like you said, like the kids you said, we might not still be Americans according to um, different feelings because we still don't get the full benefits of not only citizenship but humanity in this country. But we weren't American descendants of slaves. We were none of those things. We were Africans. And then the harms continued to any person of African descent that touched this land. They were denied housing. They were denied fair mm -hmm. wages. They were denied health care. They were left to die. They went through all of these different things over time. And so that's when we say, when we say things like what Ken was saying, all Africans that were harmed by America must be repaired by America, that's what we're saying. It's not because we want to harm our justice claim. It's just that we know our justice claim is much wider than this. Yes. It's just that we know we need to close the door fully on white, on, well, Dr. Malvo would say we shouldn't say white supremacy. On white insanity. But <laughs> we need to close the, the door fully 
on this, these crimes against humanity, and we cannot do that if we're trying to parse and splice and, and deny certain parts of our legacies and lineages due to whatever competitions, internal competitions, or xenophobia. So it's just, it's a whole lot of different components to it, but I urge people to understand that the lineage of African Americans is much larger yeah. than these borders, and what happened to us is much larger than what is often emphasized. You All know, right. thank you, Jim. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's really interesting. This nonsense is a distraction. When people talk about who should get the reparations, first we want to pass H.R. 40 and acknowledge what is owed. That's all you have to do, y'all. We're not sitting here parsing pennies here and nickels there. The NARC 10-point program, which is on ibw21.org, the NARC 10-point program lays out not just monetary reparations, but also the repair that has to happen. It's not just about the Benjamins. It's also about the psychological. It's about the health. You've talked about the multi-generational impact. So when you get these people, and I'm not even going to call them out because, I, you know, like I said, I don't curse in the church. Um, but in any case, these people, he's coming up with this nonsense about we, you, can, can you prove your lineage? Now, I must say, Reverend Amos Brown, who's on the California Commission, is a dear friend. He's known me since I was a kid, which means he's older than dirt because I'm as old as dirt. Um, but Reverend Brown is like, you know, if you start bringing all these other people in, it dilutes the claim. I think quite the opposite. That's right. I think that what Jim has said is absolutely true. We did the triangular slave trade, you know, the ways that we were all in connect, interconnected, that enslaved people who were here were sent back to parts of the Caribbean when they needed workers to harvest sugar. That people in the Caribbean were sent here. And they, I mean, and they just sort of traded us like we were bushels of sugar, not human beings. When I look at my own lineage, I mean, we can trace back to Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, but also my maternal grandfather was Haitian. He came here when there were uh, some challenges in Haiti and met my grandmother and hung around for a while. Not a long time, a little while. But in any case, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so and we can all trace that Caribbean in us, that African in us, all of that in us. This is nonsense, but what it is, let's be clear, it's a distraction. Right. It, it, it allows people who do not mean us well to go down into the weeds mm -hmm. and say, well, who should get the reparations? Well, how much should they be? Well, I mean, let's look at what happened with Japanese Americans. I mean, 20 grand was not a perfect sum, but it was a sum and it was an acknowledgement. I don't know what we're going to end up with, right. but I know that the first step is HR 40. Right. Let's stay with that. Right. All right. Let me, let me, let me, let me, we're going we're gonna to get, get, that's right, give it up. We're going we're gonna to get to the audience in a minute then. But I, I also just want to, like, you know, put it another way too, right? Because Malcolm X once said, he said, we're allowed to say hell. He said, we all catch hell for the same reason. We all catch hell because we're black people. They did not ask Abner Louima, I was mm. at the Center for Constitutional mm. Rights at that time, mm. when he was tortured. They didn't say, are you from Haiti? <laughs> Hello. Amadou at Diallo, when he was gunned down, they didn't say, are you from Guinea? They didn't ask that question. We all catch hell for the same reason. And if we're talking about we're going to strict people on the basis of lineage, you mean Shirley Chisholm ain't eligible? Harry Banner, Dale man ain't eligible? 
Kwame Ture as the Stokely Carmichael ain't eligible? No, we ain't leaving nothing on the table. We want it all. It's all. We, we do all our reparations. We ain't leaving nothing on the table. Now, here's what I want to do. Cam Howard, I want you to give us a compelling reason why H.R. 40 needs to be passed now. And, when we, and the next thing we're going to do is we're going to go out there and we're going to hear from our audience. So, H.R. 40, why do we need to get it done right now? Why can't we no longer wait? So I think everybody here has asked that question. You know, the injury is so substantial in our communities. You know, the, the gaps are widening. The quality of life is worsening for uh, black people, black people who are even in the middle class and, and uh, of an upper income level uh, live substantially uh, compared to others of that same st uh, class or income level. Uh, we look at the, uh, the tremendous amount of violence that is happening in black communities right now all over the country. There's record levels of violence in Chicago and New Orleans and New York and St. Louis and you know, every major city where black people are at. That violence stems from governmental policy at the executive level for multiple generations that have excluded blacks in general, and black men in particular, from the labor force. And now you have generations of children, boys and girls, who didn't have the family structure necessary for taking advantage of the school system, taking advantage of, of you know, all the, the things in the community that nurtures a child. Well, they didn't have those. And so now you're seeing the results of that. It looks, at, it looks like murdering you know, brothers and sisters, murdering children, carjacking children. All of these things is a result, again, of the public policy of this government waged against our community and all the community has suffered what we suffered at the hands of this government. Uh, the disparities across health, across education, across economics, across the criminal justice system, all of these things demand that this, this bill be passed right now at this particular moment. We can't wait for another generation when we have the ability and the resources to, to address this situation right now in this country. Why wait? H.R. 49. Amen. HR 40 now. Let's hear it. HR 40 now. HR 40 now. All right. Okay. So we're going to hear from our audience. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to take like maybe five hands. I see one here, two here, three. I see four, five. So in that order, come to the microphone here and talk to us. I hold the mic. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Um, it's, Greetings. it's been amazing to be here with you. Um, I listened to Dr. Malvo and Sister Taifa on WPFW. I don't know how either one of them forgot to mention that because I think that's kind of important. <laughs> and greetings to everyone. Um, just three quick points. Um, two of them kind of relate to the language of repair and the collective consciousness. Um, youth engagement. 
I'm not sure what's going on. I'm hoping that you all have some type of youth engagement around this. We have some young brothers over here that have been very patient. I think one has not at all. And these two little sisters have been doing a wonderful job sitting here right in the front. But I'm just wondering what type of youth engagement you have going on. Um, in terms of language of repair, I think that um, we have to work on shifting the language um, and taking a new approach to language. One of the things that constantly comes up is the idea of the right. And a lot of times, even though I know it refers to a political position, it's a double meaning in that. And it always implies that someone is correct. And mm -hmm. we always seem to hear that a whole lot. And the left kind of like goes to the left. Um, collective consciousness. I think that there's work in between the votes. We galvanize around voting. However, um, Dr. Malvo brought up a lot of companies that we should really be reflecting on and how we engage with those companies. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we, a lot of us are really strong out on is caffeine. Um, and some of those companies are not fair trade. Some of the companies that sell chocolate, some of the co companies that sell coffee, and we run to them. And you know, some of it is because it's in our bloodstream. We think that our nervous system needs these things, but we don't realize the harm that these things are causing globally. And this has already become a very global conversation. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you very much. <coughs> we have to make it a little shorter. Come on. <laughs> no, no. I got it. I got it here. They want me to use this mic? Where do they want us to look? This way? We got to be other, but I also want to be able to talk to them. So anyway, what we're talking about is recommendations, by the way. So I'm going to give everybody, you got like a minute and a half. Okay. Um, I got it. Okay. So, so um, my question is that um, what's the, the importance of literary work in this struggle? Because we talk about... Um, like Marcus Garvey, we talk about Bob Marley, we talk about um, Langston Hughes and other persons who, like in the 20, 1920s, who use, use literary work to help in this struggle. I, um, I've been looking on people who don't know, like Sarah Barton, um, Mary Turner, and we, we don't uncover these people and as somebody say, we don't open these coffins. So I believe that literary work can help to right. bring awareness and help to, to fulfill the struggle. I'm doing some type of literary work right now to help in that. Okay, thank you very much. Let's give it up. All right. The importance of art and culture. Hakim Adabudi, one of his most powerful poems is about art. He talks about that. Come right home. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for all your work, first of all. I know 25 years ago, it's hard to imagine it being at the point it is now. So thank you for your work. Um, I wanted to ask, there are several local initiatives. Uh, Evanston, I think it's Indiana or Illinois, uh, a couple in South Carolina. There's one right here in Greenbelt, Maryland, mm. of, of reparation initiatives. What, what do you see as 
uh, should be a model for a local one, you know, with the understanding that the, the resources are different than on a national level. Right. All right, very good. The question of art, question of, uh, question of art and local initiatives. So somebody get ready. We are going to give people a chance to respond to those questions. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Hello, panel. Greetings, panel. Thank you all for coming. And he kind of uh, took my question. I was going to ask that as well. I'm actually um, here. I was here with um, Mayor Candidate James Butler. He just came in to listen in. But he, um, he had to leave early. But he's actually one of the candidates who's running, who's promoting reparations right on his, um, his campaign. So along with the um, last question, what, how do you see us working at the local level? How do you see um, the reparations bill working at the local level. When our candidate goes around talking about reparations to the city on citywide, people tell him that it's just something that can't be done. The local administration tells him it's, it's something that's far-fetched that cannot be done. So how do you see that? Thanks. All right, come right ahead. questions. Um, the Native American slave trade, is that going to be addressed? Because um, some tribes actually um, trafficked our people. Um, the last slaves um, that were emancipated from the uh, Native American slave trade didn't happen until 1866. So it's actually the real Juneteenth. Uh, the second part is um, black slave ownership. Um, that did happen. I just want you guys to be very um, careful with that because that's a narrative that your opposi opposition may try to use against you. I collect uh, black history documents. I'm based locally, and I do have documents from actual black slave owners, so you're more than welcome to study them um, and craft your narrative. So I'm available for help. I have business cards, too. All right, thank you very much. Let's take the last one here. Uh, the five civilized tribes he's referring to, the Dawes, Rose, and all that stuff, and uh, we want to unpack that. So, yes, sir. Uh, so thank you for coming. Uh, I'm a member here at Shallow Baptist Church, and we definitely love to, to hear you speak, and uh, this is a great, has been a great topic. One thing I've, I've heard about the different arguments for, for uh, reparations and, and the reasons for it and how it affects us, all of us, but what I haven't heard, though, is that what does reparations look like? Right? I firmly believe that if we're marching somewhere, if we're going somewhere, you have to paint a picture of the goal. So what does that look like for us? All right. Okay. Well, we're going to get answers to those questions. And let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's start with uh, the last one because Dr. Malvo actually addressed it with the 10-point program. So you want to take on the question of what does reparations look like? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you all of you for your questions and comments. We really do appreciate the engagement with the audience. All of us here are except for this brother, but maybe he is, a member of NARC, the National African American Reparations Commission. And uh, we've been working together since 2015 under the leadership of Dr. Daniels to figure out what reparations might look like. That's why we have a 10-point plan. That's why we refer you to IBW21.org to look at it, to look at the things we're talking about. Reclaiming sacred sites places where people were lynched, that we have to acknowledge that. See, because what Jam has said about erasure is so very important. People don't want to know, and the brother who mentioned Mary Turner, thank you. Mary Turner was a sister. They lynched her. Then, Keisha, you and I would have been in the next two uh, trees 
They lynched her for being mouthy yeah. <laughs> and belligerent. <laughs> they said, okay, we're going to get them too. Uh, but she basically went to the courthouse to demand an explanation for why her husband was lynched after 14 people were lynched in 14 days in Valdosta, Georgia, because a white boy tried to extract their labor and made it, wanted them to work for free. And when they stopped, start bucking up, start lynching them. And she went and said, you go explain this to me. She was 19. She was pregnant. She was nine months pregnant. They hung her by her ankles. Cut that fetus out. Cut the fetus out and stomped it and stomped it. Right. So I, I just appreciate the brother mentioned that because we talk about lynchings. Most of the lynchings were of black men, but black women were also lynched. What does reparations look like? That's why H.R. 40 is a study commission that's allowing us to study what could be possible. Right. Cash payments can be possible, but if it's only cash, believe me, y'all, we don't have the. We need more than that. Right. We need education. We need our HBCUs to be fully funded. We need to make sure that we are made whole in every way. That we are full citizens, and that's going to require dollars. Right. And should white folks who didn't have slaves contribute? Yeah, because anytime anything else happens, you get some of it. Whatever they say there's going to be a tax break, you get some of it. So now there's going to be a tax penalty, you're going to get some of that too. Right. Let, me, let me quickly say that if you go to the 10-point program, we talk about two types of benefits. One is direct benefits, which could be cash and other kind of things. But we also talk about collective benefits or yes. community benefits. For example, economic development, yes. developing health care infrastructure, because we know that communications infrastructure in our community. Um, did I say health already? And education infrastructure. These are big picture uh, ideas. And one of the things that we talk about is land. For example, we still need to work with our Native American uh, brothers and sisters to get full repair to the degree that that's possible. However, they have land over which they have semi-sovereignty. They can build casinos, they can build schools, and so forth. Well, the U.S. government has millions and millions and millions of dollars, millions of acres of land. We want some land like that so we can build a, a, our Wakanda village, if you will. You see what I'm saying? So it, we are thinking big in terms of what reparations can look like. And Dr. Daniels, can I just say that I always said that the harms from the enslavement era and beyond were multifaceted. Thus, the remedies must be multifaceted yes. as well. And all the things that you're uh, talking about, and also one of the harms from the enslavement era was the denial of the right to self-determination. Right, There's some people who want to go back to Africa. Right. They should not have to swim in the ocean naked. They should have the resources necessary to make that repatriation uh, a reality. And then all the other things we're talking about. Folk want to be full citizens of this country. There must be changes in power policies and practices that go beyond basic public policy that seeks to make that uh, citizenship real. For those who want other things, that there, there's so many choices that are there that we were never uh, allowed. And by the way, I don't know which, it's either the first or second point in the 10-point program speaks exactly to that. Yes. And that is that full repatriation, knowledge program and full repatriation so that when you, if, and then there are people in, on the African continent who they're beginning to deal with this question and wanting us to come back and so forth, but you shouldn't have to go back empty-handed. You should go back with Precisely. some benefits in hand. Cam, local reparations, uh, Epson, Illinois, you were very much involved in it, as was in Kichi Taifa. Let's, let's talk a bit about what local reparations can look like, what it does look like, and what a potential model looks like. 
So in the area of local reparations, um, it's not new in a sense because prior in the probably 20 years ago, we were looking at local reparations in regards to slavery disclosure ordinances, cities getting laws passed uh, on that would require corporations and insurance companies and things like that to disclose whether or not they had any uh, culpability in the atrocities of our people. But in, 2000, in 2019, there was a huge leap from that, and that was when the city of Evanston passed uh, a legislation that required the city to fund $10 million toward reparative initiatives. It was the first municipal-wide reparations program in the country. Uh, the National African American uh, Commission went there, and we subsequently subsidized the work that Evanston has done, uh, certified, I should say, the work that Evanston has done, uh, give, given the stamp that it is a model that can't be replicated. It can be replicated because, one, it, because it uh, looks at what we call the main criteria of reparations, is that the injured party has to be the party who says what the actual injury is. The city cannot state what it is. The injured parties have to be the one who determine what the remedy is. The city can't do that. And, and it can't be regular public policy. And so we see that that's happening, that particular model is, is, is being replicated around the country. The sister who started that particular initiative, she was an alderman at the time, Robin Ruth Simmons, she subsequently um, started an organization called First Repair that brings people like my sister, like candidates, you know, who want to come to uh, forums to learn how to craft legislation what are the uh, strategies necessary, what are the bodies necessary to craft local reparations. Uh, you can go to firstrepair.org and you can be assisted with that or the National African American Reparations Commission, narc.org, and you also can be assisted in that, in that fashion. But local reparations allows, what I say is for things, four purposes. One, it pushes the federal legislation. We know that historically, what has happened on a local level, when it's amplified and replicated, it pushes the federal government to act. We know that by the Brown versus the Board of Education that desegregated schools. That was a small city of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, that, that decision went all the way to the Supreme Court that then initially, subsequently, desegregated the schools across the country. So local reparations, the more of those that happen, the more they